Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, before we start, we want to let you all know that we're doing another live show. It's going to be on Wednesday, March 20th at 7 p.m. at the Lee Strasberg Theater in West Hollywood. We're going to have a casting panel where we're going to speak to TV, film, and commercial casting directors about how to get great actors into your work. We'll cover audition techniques from both director and actor sides and learn what directors can do to find the perfect actors for their projects. And we're also going to have refreshments and lots of schmoozing time. Tickets are free for any patron tier on Patreon. Or it's just five bucks on Eventbrite. But seating is limited, so make sure you get your tickets. Check it out at live.justshootitpod.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 351st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Daniel Rhodes, Simon L. Smith, and Ryan Lagarde. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Louisa Vick on the show. She is an agent at WPA, which is an agency that represents department heads, uh, you know, directors, cinematographers, editors, those sorts of people, our people, right? And so we have a really great conversation with her. She is mostly on the feature side. So we talk mostly about the way that she guides her clients through the act of picking what projects to do, you know, how to figure out what their career is going to ultimately look like and and shape that to be something long and fruitful and special. And we dig in to talk to her about how directors like us can work with clients like hers. Yeah. And her client list is like AAA list. She represents like Larkin Seipel, who shot everything everywhere all at once. Shane Hurlbutt, who shot Terminator Salvation and does a ton of like film education stuff. Uh, you know, her client shot Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War of the Planet of the Apes and District 9 and mm-hmm. Smile and Emily mm-hmm. the Criminal and all these other things. Kong Skull Island, Super 8, 300 and Natalie Kingston, who shot Blackbird. Uh, remember, we had the showrunner on the podcast. Really awesome clients. And to me, like the main thrust behind this interview was like, hey, how can someone like us get to work with clients like yours? You know, she has like, Amazing production designers, amazing line producers, amazing editors on her roster. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are editors and production designers and cinematographers, as well as directors. And so I think she gives uh, some interesting insight, both from the viewpoint of her clients and like, you know, how she's a resource as an agent. And also for directors and filmmakers, us just getting, you know, real nuts and bolts idea of how to work with you know, like the cinematographer of Terminator Salvation. You know, I think it's really a well-timed interview for us personally as well, because Oren, I think that you in particular are on a, a crusade right now to stop thinking small. And one of the things that I think filmmakers often will do is they'll go to their collaborators that are familiar, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I think if you look at, say, Larkin Seipel's resume it's a lot of the same directors over and over and over again and um as we talk about in the interview that's a very fruitful essential part of everyone's creative journey and career that being said it's easy to think oh this person is whose work i admire or who would be perfect for this job it's easy to think that oh they're too busy oh they're too expensive oh they're too big for this job that used to be the case when you start out that's probably true right you know we your first commercial or your sketch for a funny internet website or, you know, whatever. But at a certain point, you need to stop thinking like that as your budgets get bigger and your work gets more prestigious and you're doing national broadcast spots and movies and TV shows and stuff. You should bring those collaborators along with you, but they're going to get busy and you're going to need additional people to work with. And so thinking small is a thing that sometimes can get in the way of our success. I know that you have explicitly been like, 
I'm going to go for it. I think that that attitude, that philosophy informed this decision. So if you want to go for it, you want to reach for the stars and work with that DP that you constantly are pulling their stills from their work to put in your lookbooks, you can reach out to them and we talk about that and how to do it in this episode. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we talk to Louisa, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod is the perfect place to gift yourself a little bit of film education by subscribing at any of our patronage levels, which keeps the show going. You guys know the deal. Give money to people that you don't know for no reason. <laughs> yeah, have you heard of a parasocial uh, relationship? That's when you think you know someone. It feels like you know someone, um, but you don't know them, but you basically know them through the internet or something. So like the way you feel yeah, about Conan like O'Brien. Conan O'Brien. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I think podcasting. I did meet him once. Well, oh, and by well, meet him, I mean I was in a crowd full of... <laughs> Of uh, college students watching him uh, make fun of my English professor at UCLA. Yeah, that's not not meeting him. Um, (laughs) Anyway, if you feel like you know us, you want to buy us a cup of coffee or you want to help out editor Noah, we got some fun stuff coming up in uh, 2023. Going to make it happen. I'm feeling optimistic about this year and uh, pledge now. This is probably the longest Patreon plug we've ever made. And it, it is does sound like an NPR. I'm trying to conjure my my uh, PBS phone bank pledge drive youth. Do you ever listen to a podcast and you like hit skip forward 30 seconds to get past the ads and like <laughs> you're still you're like, in an oh, ad? Still you're still in, in the ad. Well, stay tuned to Yanni live the Acropolis. <laughs> your local PBS station. Now the references are beyond me. Anyway, <laughs> patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. So without further delay, let's hop into our conversation with Louisa Vick. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Uh, we're here with Louisa Vick. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So you are an agent. Uh, we said you're a below-the-line agent, which is a term that we don't love, but it's an industry standard term, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, like what a below-the-line agent does? I'm a agent and partner um, and co-head of features at WPA. What a below-the-line agent does is, uh, in, in a nutshell, obviously, we're looking for new opportunities for clients. We're negotiating contracts. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of, I would say, the standard things that agents do. I think what excites me, and I think us as a team, and and I think also what separates us is kind of the intangible, which is the day-to-day conversations with have clients about what is the right opportunity to take at any given moment, providing guidance um, and advice about, again, the decision-making as well as being there to support them if there's issues on set, if there's other things that come up, um, you know, both personally and professionally, um, that we can help the client navigate. So, um, you know, in broad strokes, obviously we're looking for opportunities for clients, um, bring them to, to them and, and negotiating contracts, but then tangible, I think is really important. Um, which is again, having that kind of, uh, dialogue with the client and helping them guide their career. And the goal is to hope that they create fulfilling careers that, uh, they're going to look back on and, um, be proud of. That's cool. Yeah, it's funny because I think of as a director, you know, you, you hear about them having like agents, managers mm-hmm. and lawyers, mm-hmm. um, but all the cinematographers and the production designers I know, uh, they mainly only have agents. 
Um, and it kind of sounds like from your description, like you kind of cover like agent and man, what a manager would do, you know, in terms of like career guidance. A little bit of a lawyer too, even, right? Like when you get into contracts, right? You're exactly right. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of everything. Um, and again, the managerial approach is very much part of our WPA culture. And I think um, something that we all collectively sought out uh, in terms of uh, when we all came together, that was a really important component to us. It wasn't just about, you know, booking clients and moving on to the next. It was really about formulating relationships with clients where we feel like we can provide guidance and uh, really help clients shape their careers. So that was, that's always been very important to all of us as a collective. And then, of course, there's other components of, you know, you're also acting as a lawyer to reviewing contracts, making comments, things like that, and um, all, you know, handling all the negotiations. So we're, we're wearing, I would say, multiple hats at any given moment. Sometimes we're even a bit of a therapist. It's, it's a job that I think encompasses a lot of different things. And I think as an agent, I think it is important to have, I would say, a humane approach. At least that's, I think, something that's, you know, important to me and also to my colleagues. um, Because I think in this industry, especially when there is uh, so much, there's so many transactions happening, I think when you approach things from more of a humane standpoint, I think people respond to that. And that's what creates long lasting relationships, not only mm-hmm. between agents and clients, but also between, you know, agents and also buyers too, because they trust us that, you know, if we're sending somebody to them that they know that uh, there's someone that we like and also feel passionate about, and they're going to be respectful um, human beings. So I think that's a big, big component. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you say humane, you mean it's it's about just being personable, basically. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's yeah. about being personable and um, approaching things from like a fair, respectful way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think agents over a course of obviously many, many years, decades, sometimes have a reputation of of being a bit of a car salesman um, mm-hmm. type of uh, <laughs> sure. um a personality and i think our approach has always been approaching things from a more personable thoughtful kind of manner i think it's funny from our perspective sometimes like as directors you know when we talk to like our dp friends that are recently repped by someone like you or something you know mm-hmm. uh, and we text them and we're like hey i have a shoot coming up on you know next month are you available and they're like uh yeah just um contact my agent like sometimes the agent does feel kind of a little bit like the adversary because it it seems like it instantly makes it from a personal relationship to like a business relationship, you know? You know, I've been on the flip side where I've been, you know, I'm going to work on a car commercial or something and, you know, I need a DP that's really good with cars. And so like our producer will contact someone like you and say like, hey, we need this type of cinematographer, you know, or this type of editor, this type of line producer or whatever. And then it's like you become like a huge resource for the director, you know, let's say I want to shoot a commercial and I wonder if Larkin Seipel would shoot my commercial and I contact you to see if he's available. Like how much context do you need to know about the project before you check with him? And how does that work? Do you just text him and say, Hey, Larkin, are you available this week in, in March? Or I just did a project recently with like a cinematographer that I kind of like considered out of my league. But then, you know, we just called his agent and it ended up working out, you know. And so I just kind of want to give some insight to our listeners that aren't the Daniels, you know, that aren't making a Marvel movie, like how realistic it is for them to get a client, like the realistic answer. Yeah, the realistic answer. Yeah. It obviously depends on what you're working on, of course, like whether Larkin would be, you know, available or whatnot. And also like whether what you're working on is aligned with his sensibility. So, and that's, you know, a very big component. We're talking to clients about what is it they want to do next. You know, Larkin is a good example of, you know, he goes back and forth between commercials and 
film and um, television at times. So it really depends like a, you know, what he's looking to do next. Um, how does that line up with what you're working on? Is his team making the decision whether you pass something along or does everything always get passed through to him and you say, hey, we don't think this is right for you. But as a heads up, an in-demand DP, for instance, can't be inundated with every single request that comes through. So I'm curious about like 10 features a week. Well, like what's the what's the threshold? Basically, is it just a judgment call from everyone on the team? It's a team conversation as far as like we we are always as a team in the know of things that are coming his way as well as like things that we're bringing to him and discussing. And um, we do let him know about things that come in. We let all of our clients know anytime there's a direct inquiry about the client. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it is the client's choice um, whether or not to want to meet on the project you know consider shooting it um, but we give insight and uh, point of view um, to the client as far as like our thoughts on it but ultimately it is their decision so mm-hmm. um, that's you know how we work with all of our clients let me ask you a personal question. You come up with a DP, right? Or with any crew member, you know, you work together, you're doing all sorts of, you went to film school together, you you kind of work your way up. And then at a certain point, they, it feels like, oh, maybe they're telling me to talk to their agent because they don't want to say no, because they want to preserve our friendship. Have you ever had a circumstance where a client has been like, Louisa, you got to take the bullet for me on this one. Tell them I'm busy. I, I love them, but I don't want to do this project. I don't. <laughs> does that sort of stuff happen? Is that part of the job, basically? Uh, it does happen, yes. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is part of the job. There is a, an art to saying no, and how you mm-hmm. say no is important. Everyone's career path is different. And um, we talk about this a lot. Also, clients' desires, aspirations, goals change. And so there are times where people's collaborations sort of deviate. You know, you start out with working with certain directors and then for whatever reason, like either they, either the director made, you know, uh, a, a different choice on a project and didn't work with that DP um, or perhaps, you know, the DP is looking to do something different than he's done on the last, you know, four or five movies. So a lot of different variables, but, um, it is, it's, it is, it is part of the job. I knew it. Saying no, uh, is, is like I said, is definitely an art. <laughs> and, uh, I think, you know, there, there's graceful ways to go about it. And, um, you know, we, you know, the other thing too, I will say is that, you know, most of the time though, when you're saying no, there's usually an element of sure, sure. the, the reality of like, it's, you know, oftentimes not necessarily have only to do with like the material. It could be something with, the availability or going out of town or what mm-hmm. have you or the or, budget really. or, or the, the budget, budget or the yeah, budget yeah. of course that's a big component yeah. and oftentimes you know it's not only about the rate you know for that cinematographer or the editor or what have you but it's also what does it How mean in terms of what get, yeah right? the crew they get yeah. what's going to be on the screen is this yeah. you know realistic budget for what the appetite is for the script you know all those things None of your clients want to shoot my vertical iPhone uh, movie. For <laughs> your list of clients is just insane. People that are shot just like, you know, the coolest indie films or like the biggest, you know, studio films. Like at some point, if someone calls you for like a Larry Fong, you know, who shot like Super 8 mm-hmm. and 300 and Watchmen, do you say like, well, you know, I don't know if, if you can get him, but I have someone that's kind of like the young Larry Fong on my mm-hmm. roster too, you know? up and coming like do you offer kind of alternatives too like when producers are reaching out um absolutely yeah if uh if if someone calls for a client and that client's not available or won't do it and it's um a pass for them and um the producer is interested in alternative ideas then yes but we do we do protect any incoming calls for clients um so like if someone 
calls about a specific client and they want to send a script and set up a meeting, um, that is protected for that client. So um, there are though times oh, you won't like switch where, them, right? Yeah. No, yeah, meeting. exactly. Uh, unless unless they pass, they're not interested or unavailable. Um, uh, in which case, if they're unavailable, we'll still let them know that we got the call. Um, and yeah, well, of course, we like I said, we see ourselves as a resource. So if um, again, if if there's an opportunity um, and the client that they called about is not available or not interested, then yeah, we're always willing to help. Yeah, and by the way, I just noticed that you rep Radium Chung, who mm-hmm. did shoot Tangerine on an iPhone. So, yes, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, and it's an amazing movie. I'm curious about these meetings. Do you ever attend the, the meetings between like a director and a cinematographer or do you just kind of set them up? I never attend them. I help clients prep for them. So that means like I will give them as much insight as I have about what we know about the project, any personal history I may have with a director, producer, you know, all the people involved. Um, and then also provide them with feedback in terms of like, if they're putting a presentation together, provide them with feedback of what I think works or doesn't work, um, things like that. Um, talk to them in general about the script. Do you think a cinematographer needs to put together a presentation when they meet with the director? Or like, can you tell us a little bit about how to prep for that meeting? These days, I think it is very important to put a visual presentation for a cinematographer. Um, same with you know goes for. Uh, production designer or uh, costume designer, I think it is now expected um, for any, you know, any HUD really um, to come in um, with a visual presentation. Um, I think that's um, something that has become more or less standard. And I think it's always good to have um, in your back pocket to not only showcase your ideas, um, but also like your enthusiasm and mm-hmm. um, your overall perspective on the project. I think that is something that's very important. Um, the extent to which, you know, as far as like how elaborate the presentation is, will depend. I think, you know, A, everybody has a different approach of how they go about putting these presentations together. Um, you know, I always say it's also good to have kind of two versions basically of a presentation let's say like you've pulled you know certain types of certain types of images it's good to have a slightly different version as well so that when you go into a meeting with a director and you're talking about the creative if the images that you pulled out first aren't really in line with what the director is seeing it's nice to have also another set of images to say Hey, you know, there's this also alternative way to go about it. What do you think? And then it becomes more of a dialogue um, because filmmaking, obviously, as as you all know, it's very much about collaboration. And so I think it's important to show to a director that a you're listening and that you are malleable as far as like being able to take what the director is suggesting and be able to adapt and kind of interpret that in your own way. And that's, you know, that thing, obviously that's true collaboration right there. So those are some of the tidbits at least that uh, we generally give to clients whenever they're preparing for an interview. If I'm interviewing an an editor to work on a movie, Mm -hmm. when do I ask them? Like with cinematography and production design, it's real easy to look at things. Um, and I guess with an editor, you can like maybe talk about your favorite scenes or rhythm mm-hmm. and pacing. But what's like, what are some good questions to ask an editor? Well, I think as far as when you're talking to an editor, you're really talking about an overall story. So I think when you're having a discussion about the script, I think the things that are important and that you know, we talk to our editor clients a lot is what are the emotional beats? So it's the questions of like, what did you connect with emotionally, you know, and why, and sort of how do you think you could enhance that? You know, what are the important components um, sort of to 
creating the the emotional impact you want. So um, it's really talking about the story overall and who the characters are, what are the themes um, of the story, and um, also uh, very importantly talking about the tone and the type of tone that you're trying to create, and then asking the editor of based on the script, like a, what is your interpretation? And then, you know, talking about what you're trying to accomplish and getting their take on how you, how they think they would go about accomplishing that tone. That's interesting. Matt, have you interviewed like editors or DPs? Like when when do you ask them when you? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think that, um, so much of my, early career was a lot of matchmaking it was always like oh this is the editor that did the last sketch that we shot of this series so they're going to cut this one and you know you either click with them or you don't and you just kind of like you're cycling through that coming up in sketch you just get to work with a lot of different crew members all the time and sometimes you're bringing in your own people and sometimes not so so i it was very rare that i would do an interview because it was always like Oh, just we we already have a working relationship, and if I was curious about someone, I you have kind of like small, low stakes environments to see if the collaboration is a fit or not. Um, which is what I like about commercials, but there's just this extra layer of client facing affability and presentational elements that don't guide my decision making, but like. We all have met great editors who are a little grumpy and wear sweatpants a lot and they are awesome, but also like <laughs> you can't, you can't, you know, session with them right, with they the, don't like notes. Yeah. They don't like they roll their eyes or whatever. And, you know, I think Warren, you and I have careers because we're good at not rolling our eyes and turning bad notes into decent ones, perhaps. Right. So to me, it's interesting to try and basically shotgun all of the tiny little social moments that you have shooting with someone for a couple of days or, or over the course of a few months at, a, at different times or having coffee with them or lunch with them into a single meeting, right? Like if you're going to go shoot a feature with someone that you're, you're really in the trenches with them. You have to assume that any person that you're meeting with, any person that Louisa is repping, they're already awesome. They can do the job. So, so much of it to me is personal. Is right, like, right. oh, do do you get it? Do mm-hmm. I want to spend 18 hours a day with you for the next couple months? That's the that's the question, you know, like, are you going to be are you going to roll your eyes at me when I ask something dumb? Do you know what I mean? Or like try try out something that's physically impossible or like suggest something that you already tried you know all of those things are the questions for me or like or get super excited at something silly you know what i mean like i i can't tell you how many times i'll be like let's get some plexiglass and shoot blood at the lens or like you know kind of like those silly film schooly ideas i still get really excited about that that stuff sometimes and like a dp who's there to like roll with it and plus it that's what I'm looking for, basically. So, yeah. But I feel like uh, of your clients, I mean, you're kind of, you know, probably one of your more famous clients is Shane Hurlbutt, who, you know, has shot giant movies, famously, Terminator uh, Salvation, but, but also is the type of guy that would get the plexiglass and the ketchup bottle, you know, like he's like, I feel like a lot of these DPs, especially like at the top, top levels, like still love that, like kind of DIY mentality of like, Let's grab the camera and get mm-hmm. in the car and shoot that thing. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and um, Matt, to your point, I couldn't agree more. I do think personality match and just shared sensibility, I think, is a huge component. You know, whenever um, you're thinking about hiring a DP or editor or production designer, I think that's a huge component. And And also, frankly, actually for us, too, whenever we're thinking about bringing on a client it's about the talent of course but it's also about the personality and as you said you know as a director you're spending you know 
months on end, uh, especially with an editor. Um, you know, for us, it's similar. It's like if we're going to be working with a client, hopefully for years to come, like we want to be enjoying the conversations we're having. Um, so it personality is definitely, I think, a very big component and um, shared sensibility and shared way of seeing the world and then also just approaching storytelling, I think is, is definitely a important component whenever you're hiring. Yeah. I think so your client, David Rom, who shot my first movie, he, Mm -hmm. when I interviewed him, it was like, I'd say a B minus at best interview. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) how old were you when you were shooting this movie too? Out of curiosity, just as a, maybe 28. So like two years ago. Yeah. Um, (laughs) he, but he was like, I had a couple friends, a friend, Tim, Tim Cahill, that had just made a short that was at Sundance that David shot. And then the editor, Matt Barber, who's been on our podcast many times, another friend that had worked with David or knew David, they all were like, if I had, and if I could pick anyone in the world to shoot my next short, my next movie, my next thing, it would be David Rahm. And it was like, they were just so enamored by him that even though our interview was, and it was like my first feature kind of first big project. I didn't really know what to ask a DP. It was just like off the recommendations and kind of my strategy when I'm really fairly lost in terms of like how to do the interview from the director's side is I always just like look at their work, you know, look at their shorts, look at their movies, look at the trailers and just ask them like, so tell me, tell me about this, you know, where'd you film it? How, what were like the hard parts? What was fun? How'd you do this car crash? You know? Um, and I feel like that those are the super easy conversations. Mm-hmm to have and then they'll start saying like oh that night was crazy or this director was crazy or this director was amazing you know like um and you start learning things and david rom like i kind of famously i've said this on the podcast before told me like on the first day of our of our prep he's like you're not going to be one of those directors that just everything is about the movie and you expect everyone from like the pas to the grips to the electricians to all only care about your movie because it's your movie um, like you're, you're going to have some perspective on, on what this means to the different people on set. And he kind of taught me like a little bit about that. Cause I think, you know, you come from the film school mentality where, which I, I didn't go to film school, but that kind of DIY mentality where everyone is just going to like kill themselves for this project. And when you get to like more serious projects, it's like, people don't want to kill themselves, <laughs> you know, they want to do good work and they want you to be prepared. So you're not wasting their time on set, like trying to figure out what you're doing, you know? Um, and he also, I also remember when we did a scene that we changed location last minute and I was like, he's like, Hey, how are we shooting this? And I said, two shot and the, you know, over the shoulders. And he said to me, the two shot is the most boring shot in, in cinema. Like (laughs) hard disagree, but, but, but his point was right. His point was right. (laughs) Um, um, But, uh, you know, in commercials, a lot of times we travel and you know, when we're lucky, we get to bring our DPs. Uh, I've never personally been able to bring a production designer with me. And, and a lot of times when you're shooting in other places, you kind of want a local person that knows mm-hmm. the locations, that knows the crew, that knows like where to get the stuff. And there's the advantages, I think, of a local production designer. And so I have had to interview a lot of them. And recently I interviewed two in New York. First one was real nuts and bolts. You, you know, I talked to her about like the colors and the things that we wanted to have in our location and how we wanted to dress the set. And she was, you know, very much like budget conscious, you know, like, you know, well, we might be able to afford this. We got, I got to kind of, I still haven't talked to the producer. We'll figure this out, like what we can do. And the other uh, production designer who is a a much more veteran production designer that's been kind of doing it for a very long time, just came right out of the gate with like, I love the idea behind this. And this is a commercial, you know, a 15 second commercial. Like, I love the, the, the idea here. Like, I to- totally connect to it. And it's, like, so relevant. And he just, like, instantly won me over by talking about the ideas of the commercial and, like, kind of making the logistics very much, like, not something I should worry mm-hmm. about. Um, and obviously, at some point, like, it, everything does come to, like, time and, and money. But in that first conversation, it's just, like, awesome to have a DP, a production designer, an editor, whether it's a 15-second commercial or a, you know, 20 episode TV show just come and talk to you about like why they're excited about the things and, you know, or Mm -hmm. even the things that they think they have some ideas on how they could be better because, you know, not everyone is pitching on things that they instantly fall in love with, you know? I'm curious for our listeners at home who are maybe cinematographers, maybe they're editors, they're basically 
people who are curious to become repped by you or someone like you, what does an ideal early career client look like to you? And how do you source those people? How do you discover them in the first place? The things that we look for are very much a a point of view and consistency in the work, meaning when I look at the work, um, and this is specifically in regards to um, cinematographers, like the work has to be consistent in terms of the use of lighting and camera movement and things like that to for me to be able to identify a certain point of view. So from a logistical standpoint, we do need an existing buyer base of some sort. It can be a smaller buyer base, but say you're coming out of commercials and music videos. So you should, you know, if you have a good amount of buyers, meaning directors, producers that are coming to you asking to book you, then there's pre-existing business there we can build on. Again, I wouldn't put a quantity on that, um, but if we need something to build off of. You're saying that they have to be working. Like you can't start Correct. someone from scratch. Like if someone's like, hey, I mean, Louisa, student loans are rough. Help me out. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably not in the right position to, to No, yeah, I would say, yet. yeah, no. I mean, if you're if you're coming out of fresh out of like, film school, but you don't have much of a body of work, let's say you've only shot like a couple of short films, that would be really hard for us to work with. Again, an existing body of work to work with and again, repeat business to a certain extent that we can expand upon. Um, You know, it could also be, you know, having had like a couple of features under your belt. It's obviously helpful if those features have gone to well-known mm-hmm. festivals. Um, that certainly helps. There's not really necessarily like a criteria that we strictly follow um, because again, everyone's path is different, but an existing, like I said, buyer base is definitely, is definitely important because we need something to build off of. Right. That's interesting. I've never heard that term before. Yeah, it's it's so flattering <laughs> slash kind of out of body to be referred <laughs> to as a buyer. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. as writer directors, I think of a buyer as a totally different person than like, you know, when I text my friend like, hey, are you available for this job? You know, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, that's more really more of a I would say a business term. Um, uh, and again, that's more of a way to kind of simplify a combination of like relationships, so to speak, uh, that one might have. So, uh, but you, you get the idea. (laughs) So you've recently started repping directors. Can you tell us a little bit about like how that works? Are you getting them jobs? Are they, are you mainly doing negotiating for contracts that their buyer base is already coming for? Like, tell us, you know, a lot of our listeners are directors. Mm -hmm. Like, tell us Mm -hmm. about what you do for directors. And like, if, if directors even need an agent or like, do they only need an agent at a certain point in their career? Like, can you tell us a little bit about that? It depends on sort of where you are in your career. I mean, we have some directors, uh, for example, like Lena Sokovska, who is super talented. Um, she's very um, talented commercial director who is now transitioning to narrative. And um, when um, you're making that transition, there's definitely a lot of legwork that needs to be done as far as expanding your network. And so part of that is, you know, setting up general meetings, um, helping her develop her own projects um, that she wants to direct, um, helping to take those out um, and, uh, you know, fostering new relationships for her and trying to, you know, find new opportunities. It really depends on sort of where the client's coming from, like what their background is, what their experience level is. Cool. And you, you specialize in features though, right? At WPA? 
Yes, my specialties features. Um, I do cover uh, Netflix one hour um, shows as well, but 99% of my time is spent on features. I'm curious about what drew you to being an agent in the first place, actually, because you've got like a really deep background in terms of you know, trying your hand at a handful of things. Walk us through just kind of like the the quick story of how you became an agent and and why. The simple answer is I fell into it. I went to USC film school and thought I wanted to direct, as many do. As um, they do, and, yeah, sure. As they do, <laughs> and uh, and def, you know, directed some shorts and whatnot, and really enjoyed that process. So I. I always had um, passion for storytelling and uh, appreciation for the whole process, you know, the whole production process, the post process, um, all of it. And, you know, I realized when I was uh, exiting uh, film school is that obviously I needed to get a job. It wasn't going to be a job uh, as a director, uh, at least right away from uh, film school. So my idea was, well, I should try different things and basically see what I like. And then that led to me working commercial production and gaining a lot of experience as far as like understanding how the sets run and, and so forth. But ultimately decided I didn't want to stay in commercials because it was you know a little bit too far away from the actual storytelling for me. Then I pivoted and thought I was like, well, I should get experience working in an agency um, because mm-hmm. it's a great background to have regardless of what you do um, because you get to be exposed to you know who's who is making uh, the projects and um, understanding kind of like how the whole machine works and so I went to Paradigm uh, started to work there as an assistant in the production department and then that's where um, I ended up meeting actually a lot of my colleagues that I still work with today. While I was at Paradigm, um, again, a lot of my colleagues uh, that I work with still today, like I saw how they were all working and um, the care and thought they put in into agenting. And I saw a rewarding side to being an agent, um, that it mm-hmm. wasn't just uh, transactional, but that you could make a difference and and the clients' careers and you can influence sort of how how things, you know, happen for them in terms of mm-hmm. being able to open doors for them, give them guidance of like what to do in different situations and um, you know, what projects to take or not to take and being that sounding board for them. So that ultimately is what appealed to me because um prior to that I very much had the notion that, you know, agents, you know, again, were more or less car salesmen and and that didn't appeal (laughs) to me, but I saw the opportunity to make a difference. And that's, again, that's the why, and that's why I do it. I think that's why we all collectively do what we do at WPA. And it really has become my calling and something that I'm really passionate about. And, um, I love doing every day. And, uh, I think it definitely obviously makes a big difference. To me, being an agent seems like a really awesome job, but just like so difficult. <laughs> like, <laughs> and also like kind of like a feast or famine type of mm-hmm. deal, like like being an actor. Like either you are at the top and you have clients like yours, or you're just like every day, like the guy, the koala bear from Sing, Matthew McConaughey's character, if you guys have seen that uh, animated movie, DreamWorks, <laughs> he's just like mm-hmm. running around like, hey, let me rep you, let me rep you, you know? <laughs> Uh, I'll make you a deal. I'll get, you know, and it's just like, it's just, that's why to me, it's like so so scary. But once you've kind of established yourself, it seems like a really rewarding job because you get to work with super talented, creative people and help them and be involved in so many projects. You know, I feel like it's one of the few jobs that someone, you know, that one person can touch so many different projects um, because uh, you have, you know, a, a lot of clients. Can you give me like a rough rate of like, or a a rough range of like kind of what an inexpensive cinematographer costs Mm. per day to like an expensive cinematographer? Uh, Like I know kind of my perspective, like what I think it is, but I'm curious uh, if, if there is, you know, like in the below the line 
representation handbook. There's like, you know, a range. Um, sure. And we're talking about commercials or we're talking yeah, about like, let's say I wanted to sure. hire a cinematographer to prep for a week, shoot for two days and shoot for two days. Let's say something like that. Like, you know, what, what are kind of the ranges that. Um, I would say obviously, you know, uh, it always depends on the person's, um, expertise and then of course like also relative usually to the to the budget as well um you know on a low budget commercial and you're first starting out um you know in in the commercial space you're probably looking at like a thousand a day um on a higher end commercial um for a dp i mean you're talking about five thousand you know potentially higher, you know, if we're talking about, um, award-winning cinematographers. So, uh, you know, let's say 5,000 a day and above, you know, at that level. And so let's say that that's, that's awesome. That's kind of, you know, I, um, work with some producers that say, you know, like, is this project the $2,500 day DP or is this the $5,000 day DP or the $1,000 day, you know, and in right. their mind, there is, a difference between, you know, the, like mm -hmm. the, the final product is different, but, but also like a $5,000 day DP probably needs, you know, more support. Like you, first of all, it's going to probably be a union shoot, you know, and mm -hmm. it's probably, they're going to need an operator and they're going to need a DIT and they're going to need like these other things and camera prep. I, and how does that, so let's say you hire someone that's, let's say $3,000 a day, just to throw out a, a number there. And there's a week of prep. How, like, is that $3,000 for a shoot day or how does it work? In terms of like the how much at, at the end of the day does the do they get? Yeah, let's, what's the project rate? fee versus? Um, I mean, typically, our yeah. typically our clients working at the same uh, daily rate for prep and shoot. You know, mm -hmm. unless there's you know some exceptions that needs to be made, and it's a project they have to do, um, there might be some concessions made, um, but typically. Uh, it's the same rate for prep and shoot. And so if it's a scout that's just like one hour of the day or something, they would get their full day rate for that? I mean, if it's an literally an hour, um, there perhaps could be a conversation uh, had about like what, you know, what that looks like uh, monetarily. Um, but uh Typically, like I said, it is usually like the same daily rate. So, um, you know, and, and also typically it's, it's one of those things sometimes even like we're talking about like travel days, you know, mm -hmm. you know, travel days, generally speaking, you're also at the, at the same rate, but uh, usually what happens is like, you're not just traveling. You're also like coming to wherever you're going and then you're mm -hmm. scouting or you're having meetings or what have you. So um, we, we ask all those details and again, we, we assess things and then, uh, again, it's, it's a case by case basis. Yeah. I like to corner my DPs on the airplane mm -hmm. <laughs> lists with them. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's for a long time. I, um, never wanted to know what anyone was making because like DPs are a great example where it's like, Oh, your day rate is less than my day rate but if you figure in all of the unpaid time i have on phone calls and pitching and all that stuff you know you start doing the math and you're like dang maybe i should have been a dp instead of a director <laughs> yeah i know it's you never want to know as a director that the just, dp is just making way more money than yeah you, you just see project. it's like oh wait you you own that alexa that's like a it's like $150,000 for the gear you got right there, buddy. You know, so. Yeah. How, does, how does gear play into it? Does that usually go through you or would that be like a separate deal between the producers and the DPs if they own like the camera package or they own some, some other gear? Uh, that's a good question. It's usually a separate um, deal that uh, we typically don't handle. So that's usually between the DP and the producer. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, you know, we have some DPs that, um, own equipment that uh, is at a camera rental house. So sometimes, you know, it's a conversation of, 
you know, a deal to be made through the rental house um, uh, to rent their gear. So, yeah, that that's not generally something that we negotiate. We may have a discussion with the producer about um, bringing our clients' gear onto the project, but we don't um, actually handle uh, that part of the negotiation. Right. Because I guess I sometimes, you know, especially on the lower budget things, it's like, hey, I know the rate's a little low, but we are going to get, you know. Yeah, we're going to rent your camera, so don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it is a little bit unfair, obviously. Sure. (laughs) They should be getting paid for both things. They did invest tens of thousands of dollars on the camera. Yeah. Um, And then, so I'm assuming for features, it would be a little less expensive, right? On a, a day rate. Like if you're shooting for like an indie feature for 25 days, let's say um, that that same com- DP that's getting $5,000 a day on a commercial probably is not getting $5,000 a day for like a month of prep and a month of shooting. Are they? I would say yes, for the most part. Yeah. That will be uh very, very uh, difficult. I think for any production to, pay uh that amount uh on on a small uh, budget indie so yeah typically again in in the indie space again it varies based on the budget and also a lot of times it will also vary in terms of like how much is being spent on the cast mm-hmm. you know versus how much is being and you know producer director fees uh versus and then versus like the production um budget uh so uh, but yes, you're you're correct. Like you know, on an indie, certainly like on a smaller indie, it will be closer to like you know a thousand a day. Again, it's going to vary on you know the yeah, size of the budget, uh, whatnot. So and who it is. So um, you and know, ownership on, or like points play into it at all. Like if you know, on an indie film, do you ever negotiate that? Um, yes, we do negotiate that. Um, typically, it is more on. Um, much smaller budget films that cannot afford mm-hmm. the rate the client is uh, used to getting. So um, we do negotiate that as far as like back end points or perhaps like a sales bonus or something like that. Um, that's definitely something that uh, we uh, talk to producers about. Well, we're just in the nitty gritty on money. There's got to be, especially for your emerging clients or younger clients, people who don't have as many credits as some of the people on your roster there's got to be circumstances where the money that the client is taking home is isn't really the incentive that the the feature is is going to be really special it has the opportunity to pop they're really going to get to show a different side of their creative personality or whatever it is they're they're creatively driven to want to do this movie yeah it's got some interesting talent attached they're not really making a ton of money they're not making much money at all let's say right um, there's got to be a calculus for the agency because if your client is making peanuts, then you're making 10% of a peanut, right? So, but at the same time, you're still invested in their career on the long term. You know, walk us through, I guess, maybe just like your attitude about that sort of work, presuming that it, you, you, you're on the same page with your client that like, you do think it's worthwhile creatively to do this and good for a good career decision, basically that it's not going to be a embarrassment or a waste of their time in some way. Mine and, and, you know, WPA's philosophy um, has always been follow the art and the money will follow. Um, So we're always in favor of clients doing artistic work that they're passionate about. So regardless of, how much it's going to pay. Um, so if the client is passionate about doing, you know, a million dollar movie, that's going to pay peanuts. And we all collectively think, yeah, that's a great uh, move because the story has a lot of potential. This director has a lot of potential. Um, you know, the, the client is over the moon about the project. Um, we wholeheartedly support that. So um, that that has always been our mentality. And I think um, it's something that is a very important component because um, ultimately, like if you do good work and um, you making decisions 
in an educated, smart way about your you're following your instincts, you're following the creative, that's gonna continue to progress your career forward. If you're only mm-hmm. following the money, it's gonna be a lot of the same. And ultimately you create a career that is likely gonna be less fulfilling um and uh less curated um in terms of you know your entire body of work. So um so yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, and, and to, truthfully too, as far as like when you're talking about quality of scripts, really small independence is where a lot of the best stories are. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we talk about that a lot. Um, and that's again, one of the reasons why, as I mentioned, like I love going to festivals because a lot of the films that I see for example, at Sundance tend to be my favorite movies that year. Um, So um, usually some of the best creative is in the independent films. And again, those don't pay a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for being open about that. Like really the reason we're asking about this aside from just us, you know, kind of being curious for ourselves is like, I think there is just a fear, like there is just an assumption that people like can't afford to get this great, Mm -hmm. you know, or that, Mm -hmm. but like, nuts and bolts actually maybe they can't you know they're they mm-hmm. have a hundred thousand dollars to shoot something for a, a day or two and they can probably get you know one of your clients to shoot I, you know like a, a million dollar movie if it's the right script if it's this you know then like i don't know it, it's something that i personally like struggle with which is sometimes like oh this is a small project like can i ask this really acclaimed person to be a part of it and uh what i'm finding is a lot of times yeah, you know, you can. And obviously the worst thing you can hear is no, uh, no, we can't do that. But uh, you can also hear yes. Like, I appreciate you talking to us about how agents can be, you know, resources, obviously for their clients, but also for like the directors and the filmmakers and the mm-hmm. people that come to you to to work with your clients. Hopefully people learn something from this interview. Thanks so much for talking to us. I hope so too. <laughs> do you have a minute to hang out with us to do an unpaid endorsement? Sure. Unpaid endorsements. My unpaid endorsement is the uh, GQ write-up of James Cameron called uh, The Return of James Cameron, Box Office King. It's like a kind of a long form piece about, you know, his career. He's got the new Avatar sequel coming out. And, you know, it's kind of in the midst of early reactions to Avatar and kind of this new emerging narrative that like, ha ha ha, we all thought that James Cameron was insane for spending so much time and so much money trying to make these movies. But the guy never misses. He's going to make, he's going to, you know, top the box office again. You know, I boy, I love Terminator 2. I really love Terminator 2. Oh, um, it's my favorite movie of all time. So good. Don't get me started. I guess I'm excited for Avatar 2 is what I'm saying. And no matter what, you know, there's so much to learn from that guy. He's so specific and singular and competent across the board. You know, they say that James Cameron can do any person's job on set kind of better than most people doing them and uh so you know i guess he's like maybe a little surly sometimes um but uh but there's a lot to admire about him and it's a great piece that addresses that asks him about him about that he kind of confronts it digs in a little bit on on the myth of james cameron on the eve of this new movie coming out so uh the the return of james cameron box office king I can't wait to hear what you all think of Avatar 2. So uh, my unpaid endorsement is this amazing film that's coming out on December 23rd, and that's called Living. Oliver Hermanus uh, directed it, WPA client Jamie Ramsey, um, shot it, and uh, I got to see it at uh, Camera Homage um, Cinematography Film Festival last month. And um, I think it's uh, an amazing film. It's very heartwarming and um, 
uh, aspirational, uh, talks a lot about the choices we make in our life and what we decide to spend basically our life on, uh, in terms of what, what is important and, you know, who is important and how the decisions we make, um, ultimately impact also the experience, uh, the life experience we have. So definitely highly recommend, uh, watching it. It's, uh, it stars, uh, Bill Nye and it's a beautiful, uh, masterful piece of filmmaking. And, uh, I think it's, it's definitely worth seeing. Kaplan, what you got? The podcast I'm just like so obsessed with, and I apologize if I've talked about this already, but is Conan needs a friend. It's a Conan O'Brien podcast. I think it's been on forever. Did I talk about it already, man? Yes, you did. I did. Sorry. I just like listen to it every day. Cause it's, I was like a real political podcast junkie for a while. First, I was like a filmmaking podcast junkie, then a political podcast junkie. And now I just like want to like laugh and not worry about things. And it's just, I mean, it's so good. Uh, there's an app. It's okay. It's called Photo Circle. And I just used it on my last shoot. And it's basically like, you know, if everyone on the production is like taking photos, mm -hmm. behind the scenes photos and clients and agency and Whoever, it's like an Apple iCloud album, but it's like forever. You don't have to have. So everyone iPod. uploads their photos to. Yeah, so yeah. everyone uploads their their photos from their phone to the Photo Circle group, and you can you can comment on it. But you also get like if you all go to an event together, you make this Photo Circle group, and then you get everyone's photos. So anyway, those are my things. Awesome. Well, uh, awesome. If we want to learn more about you, Louisa, are you on Instagram? Should we go to the WPA website? What's the best way to find out more about you and what you're doing? Uh, I would say go to the WPA website. That's uh, WP-A.com. I would uh, go there because uh, we were very active in terms of promoting clients' work and you can kind of see see the latest updates there. Uh, and I'm also on Instagram, uh, Louise Vick, uh, if you'd like to find me there too. Well, you can tweet us instagram us all of that stuff if you have any questions about the show want to follow up in any way at just shoot a pod across all social media you can email us at just shoot a pod at gmail.com and you can hit me up on social media at mr matt and across everything and i'm at smitey pileg on twitter i'm at o kaplan on instagram this episode was edited by noah bayshore our producer is tyler smalls and the music that we're listening to is from the free music archive and the artist jazar and we'll catch you next time thanks everyone bye bye